all over the world today, believers have gathered in churches and pastors have walked to the pulpit and they've said, Christ is risen. And the church has said, he is risen indeed. So let's practice that. I'm going to say the first part, you say the second part. Christ is risen. Oh, my goodness. Don't get too fired up on me now, okay? I mean, the Son of God is out of the grave, folks. The Son of God has been declared to be the Son of God by his resurrection from the dead. The Son of God has provided us a living hope. So let's try it again. Christ is risen. That's better. That's more like it. So take your Bible and turn to Mark chapter 16. I want to speak to you, obviously, on the resurrection. Mark chapter 16. Let me ask you a question. What sets Christianity apart from every other world religion? I would say it's the fact that its origin can be traced to one event on one particular day in history in one particular place involving one individual. The same cannot be said for Buddhism, for Hinduism, for Judaism, for Confucianism, for Islam, for Mormonism, or any other religion. Of course, the one event I'm referring to is the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. As a result of his resurrection, 2,000 years ago, the church was suddenly born. And today, 2,000 years later, there are over 2 billion people on this planet who identify themselves as believers in Jesus. There are four biographies of Jesus in the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. In all four of these biographies, great emphasis is given to the last week in Jesus' life. It's like the Holy Spirit inspired these early disciples to make a, a huge point about the last week in Jesus' life, his death, his burial, and resurrection, because the Holy Spirit knew, and he wanted these disciples to know that this truth has enormous um, ramifications for the entire world. In the last few weeks, we've traced the steps of Jesus through Gethsemane to Golgotha, and today we come to the grave where he was buried. Even his closest followers thought that he was dead. They thought that they could write the end, the epitaph on Jesus' life. But I, I want you to know that today they're going to be very surprised. And today I want you to understand, dear friend, that we're going to insert ourselves into this spine-tingling drama as it plays out in the pages of Mark's gospel. So look at Mark chapter 16, verse 1. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might come and anoint him. Jesus had been crucified by the Romans on Friday. In fact, he probably died around 3 o'clock on that Friday. 
Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, two members of the Jewish Sanhedrin, took his body, wrapped his body in cloths, and packed it with 75 pounds of spices to, um, to overcome the, the decomposition that would occur in that hot part of the Middle East. All of this happened before sundown because the Jewish Sabbath ran from sundown on Friday to sundown on Saturday. After the Sabbath ended at sundown on Saturday, these women went to a merchant who opened for just a little while before dark and bought the spices that they needed to anoint the body of Jesus. Needless to say, these were some long hours for the disciples. They had devoted themselves to Jesus. They had followed him for three years, and they were disillusioned, and they were depressed, and they were discouraged because they had seen their master die a horrible death on the cross. They had seen him scorned. They had seen him beaten to within an inch of his life. And in their minds, it was all over. It was all over. Their three-year adventure with Jesus had come to a screeching halt. Now, Mark's biography highlights three women who were incredibly devoted to Jesus. So they went, they purchased the spices and so that they could anoint the body of Jesus. And it's important to note that these same three women witnessed the crucifixion of Jesus, and two of them witnessed his burial. So two of them knew exactly where he was buried. Look at verse 2. Very early on the first day of the week, they came to the tomb when the sun had risen. The women came to the tomb of Jesus early on Sunday morning. Little did they know that it was a brand new day of a brand new week, and a brand new age. It's clear that they did not expect Jesus to be raised from the dead. It's clear that they fully expected his body to be in the tomb. That's why they had bought the spices. That's why they were ready to go to the tomb and anoint his body. Look at verse 3. They were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? So as they're making their journey to the tomb, they're constantly talking among themselves and asking themselves, who's going to roll away this stone so that we can even get in the tomb so that we can anoint the body of Jesus? Now, archaeologists tell us that tombs of the first century, especially for those who are moderately wealthy, were normally sealed with a flat, disc-shaped stone wedged into a groove. It was a massive stone, and it was designed to keep animals and grave robbers out of the tomb. These women were naturally concerned. How, how are we going to get into the tomb to do what we feel led to do. They were so devoted to Jesus. They were willing to be considered ceremonially unclean in Jewish eyes. They were willing to put themselves at danger from the hands of the Roman soldiers in order to do this one thing for the Lord Jesus. They wanted to honor him one more time. Look at verse 4. Looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled away although it was extremely large. That word large in the Greek is the same word we get our word mega from. It was a mega stone. It was a large stone. It was a heavy stone. 
And by the time the women arrived at the tomb, the Roman soldiers who had been assigned by, by Pilate to guard the tomb had disappeared, and the tomb's entrance was wide open. How could it be? Well, Matthew's account fills in the gaps for us. He tells us that long before daybreak, an angel descended from heaven and rolled back the stone and sat upon it. His countenance was as bright as lightning. The dazzled and dismayed guards fell to the ground as dead men. And when they finally recovered enough, they got up and they ran as fast as they could in, into, the, into the day because they were scared absolutely to death. All of this happened before the women arrived. So when they got there, the tomb was wide open. Verse 5, look at it. Entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting at the right, wearing a white robe, and they were amazed. Well, who was this young man? Well, he was an angel. The women entered the tomb expecting to find the dead body of Jesus. They looked to their right, and there is an angel dressed in a low, long, flowing, bright white garment. The scene was out of this world. Mark tells us that they were amazed. That word amazed conveys a, a powerful mixture of shock and fear and astonishment. Think about this. As I studied this week, it came to me. The angels announced the birth of Jesus. And here they were after his death, his burial, and his resurrection, and the angels were there to announce his glorious resurrection. It's like bookends to his life. Look at verse 6. And he said to them, here's what the angel said to them. Do not be amazed. Now when I read that, here's my first thought. That's easy for you to say, brother. You're an angel. You're talking to me. You're bright as lightning. And you tell me not to be amazed. Well, and the angel said, you were looking for Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified. He wanted them to know they had found the right tomb, right? He has risen. He is not here. Behold, here is a place where they laid him. So the angel identified the person they were looking for. It's very clear, Jesus of Nazareth. Do you know what they saw? When they looked... They saw the spice-soaked grave cloths neatly folded and, and the neatly folded face covering that lay there as a mute testimony to the miracle of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. What the angels shared next was the central truth of the Christian faith, that Jesus of Nazareth, God's son, was crucified and he had been raised from the dead. Paul defined this as gospel truth in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 and 4. He wrote to the Corinthian church, it said, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ is without a doubt the most important things that have ever occurred on the face of this planet. This is a message that will set a person free from their sin. 
This is the person, this is a message that will take a person who is bound up in sin and some kind of a problem that has their lives all twisted up and will set them free. This is a message that will bring encouragement to the heart of someone who stands before a freshly dug grave as their loved one is laid into that grave. This is that message, the gospel message of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is the message that we are to share with our neighbors and the nations. Look at verse 7. But go, tell his disciples and Peter. He is going ahead of you in Galilee, to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Now, the, the angel is reminding these ladies that they have been told and the disciples have been told over and over again that Jesus would not stay dead, that Jesus would die, but he would be raised on the third day. It's interesting the way the angel said this. He said, but go and tell his disciples and Peter. Have you thought about why the, the, the angel would say it like that, and Peter? sort of singling Peter out? You think the angel knew that Peter needed some extra encouragement? Do you think the angel knew that Peter was down in the dumps and was beating himself up because he had denied his Lord three times when the Lord needed him the most? With these words from the angel, the women's perplexity and panic were transformed into a call to proclaim that truth of the resurrection of Jesus to the disciples. Look at verse 8. They went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had gripped them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Awestruck by the news that they had just, just heard and the, 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 the scene that they had just observed there in the in the tomb, they trembled. They were overcome with astonishment and fear. Matthew explained that they were also filled with exceedingly great joy. Joy. So what did they do? They fled from the tomb and immediately went to find the disciples, saying nothing to anyone else along the way. In fact, in Matthew's gospel, he says this in Matthew 28, 8, and they left the tomb quickly. They ran away from the tomb. Uh, they, they could not wait to get to the disciples and to share this good news with the disciples. They left the tomb quickly with fear and great joy and ran to what? To report it to the disciples. Hey, can I ask you a question? When was the last time that you were amazed about Easter? Seriously. When you got up this morning, was there a little tingle in your spirit? When you drove to church today, did you have a sense of anticipation? When is the last time that you were truly astonished and amazed at the fact that Jesus of Nazareth was raised from the dead? I'm afraid that in the church today in America, we are a lot like the, the guy who is reading a novel. 
and he begins to read. He reads the first chapter, and then he goes to the last chapter, and he reads how it's going to end, and then he goes back, and he reads the novel, and everything is so-so from that point forward because he knows how it's going to end. Hey, let me tell you something, dear friend. We should never allow the devil to lull us into sleep concerning the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Let me tell you this. There is nothing on this planet that has ever happened that begins to rival the resurrection of Jesus as to the importance and the implications that it has for us in the human race. I, I want to share truth with you today that that I believe from the core of my being, Jesus is the risen Lord. He is. I believe this, this, this gospel account testifies to that. And I want to share with you four words that captures the essence of the story of Easter, the story of the resurrection of Jesus. Number one, the first word is this, faith, faith. Jesus told his disciples on multiple occasions, guys, we're going to Jerusalem, I'm going to die, but I will be raised again on the third day. For some reason, they couldn't grasp that. They couldn't grasp it. In Mark chapter 8, verse 31, earlier in his ministry, the Bible said Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and after three days, rise again. Mark chapter 9, verse 9, coming down from the Mount of Transfiguration. As they were coming down from the mountain, he gave them orders not to relate to anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man rose from the dead. Mark chapter 9, verse 31, for he was teaching his disciples and telling them, The Son of Man is to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he has been killed, he will rise three days later. Mark chapter 10, verse 34. They will mock him, spit on him, scourge him, and kill him. And three days later, he will rise again. Mark 14, 27 and 28, right there in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus said to his disciples, you will all fall away because it is written, I will strike down the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I've been raised, notice this, after I have been raised, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. You would think that at least one of those disciples would get up early Sunday morning and rouse some of the other disciples and say, hey, boys, don't you think we might should go to the tomb and just check this out? But listen, not a single one of them headed to the tomb. The women headed the tomb, not to, not to ascertain whether Jesus had in fact kept his promise. They went to the tomb because they thought he was dead, and they went to anoint his body. It, it seemed like the whole group missed this important fact, this important truth. Let me tell you, the resurrection of Jesus was witnessed by multiple people over a period of 40 days, including the women, all the disciples, James, the brother of Jesus, or half-brother of Jesus, 500 disciples at one time, and last but not least, the apostle Paul on the road to Damascus. 
Jesus died on the cross for your sins. Ladies and gentlemen, I tell you on the authority of God's word. Jesus did not die on the cross for his sin because he had no sin. The Bible says that Jesus became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in you. Every rotten sin that you've ever committed in your life or you will ever commit in the future was placed upon the broad shoulders of the sinless son of the living God. And Jesus assumed your guilt. And Jesus shed his blood on the cross of Calvary to pay the penalty for your sin to a holy, righteous, and just God. Jesus did that because he loves you, because God loves you. The Bible said God demonstrates his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Four of the most important words in the Bible, Christ died for us. He died for you. And when he died, they buried him. They buried him in a barred tomb, Joseph of Arimathea's tomb. And they sealed it. The Romans sealed it with a Roman seal. They put guards there to guard it. But I'll tell you, dear friend, when God gets ready to raise his son, there is no Roman army that can keep God from raising his son from the dead. And God the Father raised Jesus from the dead on the third day, and he is alive. And you know what happened? When God raised his son from the dead, it proved that Jesus was not an ordinary man. He was and is and will forever be the son of the living God. Let me tell you this. Faith in Jesus is the most important thing in your life. You know what the Bible says? The Bible says that one day you're going to die. Hey, you may have all the toys you need right now. Everything's going great in your life. I mean, you feel like you've got the world by the tail. But dear friend, I tell you on the authority of God's word that it says that it's appointed unto man once to die and then comes the judgment. One day you're going to stand before a holy, righteous God. And if you reject Jesus as your personal Savior and Lord, you will be turned into a devil's hell where you will spend eternity separated from Jesus. The good news is you don't have to. The good news that the angel shared with the women. The good news that Paul talked about in 1 Corinthians 15 is that you can be forgiven. Jesus can forgive every sin of your life. He can give you the gift of eternal life. He can bring you to heaven when you die where you can live with him forever. And faith is the most important thing you can have in your life. It's more important than the house you own. It's more important than the car you drive. It's more important than anything you have in this life. So I ask you a question. Are you ready today to receive Jesus by faith as your personal Savior and Lord? Are you? Are you ready? In just a moment. I'm going to ask our staff to come, and we're going to worship again. And I'm going to invite you to leave your seat. And you say, Pastor, I am that man. I am that woman. I am that boy. I am that girl. I need a Savior. Ladies and gentlemen, there's only one Savior for the entire human race. And his name is Jesus. Jesus of Nazareth, the risen Son of the living God. And I invite you to come to him today and receive him by faith as your personal Savior and Lord. You can't be saved by works. You can only be saved by grace through faith in Jesus. 
And our staff is going to be here. And we're not going to embarrass you if you come. I promise you that. You just come to one of our staff members. And you just simply say to them, today I want Jesus as my Savior, Lord. And we'll explain to you how you can have the gospel do its work in your life. And how you can be saved and forgiven and receive the gift of eternal life. So in just a minute, I'm going to ask you to come. I want you to be ready when that music starts to come. But the second word that, that captures the essence of the story of Easter is this. It is grace. Grace. Now let's go back to verse 7. Look at it. But go tell his disciples and Peter. Now, now Mark received this material for this gospel from Peter. And all of these disciples, except for John, had deserted Jesus. And Peter himself had denied Jesus three times when Jesus needed him the most. Can you imagine how this must have tormented the, the, the apostle Peter? Can you imagine how he beat himself up? I know that, that when I failed Jesus, I beat myself up. And, and I don't want to do that. But sometimes we fail him. We fail him in different ways. Peter failed him by denying him. Other people fail him by not sharing the gospel when G Jesus brings somebody across our path that needs the gospel. There are many ways we can fail him. But the, 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 the importance of this statement right here, but go tell the disciples and Peter, is that it's like the Holy Spirit wants us to know, wants us to know that no matter what we've done, no matter how we fail, no matter how far we've backslidden, Jesus is already, always ready to give you grace to restore you back to a right relationship with him, always. And that is good news. In Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, the Bible says, For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not as a result of work, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in. Now listen to that. Jesus knew what he wanted to do with Peter's life. He knew that he was going to bring Peter back into a right relationship with him. He knew that he was going to give Peter victory over the guilt that he felt. And he knew that he wanted Peter to take the gospel of Jesus Christ to the world. He wanted Peter to be a leader in the church. And Peter, because of the grace of Jesus was brought back to Jesus. Listen, many of you today, you say, Pastor, I feel like I've failed Jesus. Pastor, there was a time when I was walking with Jesus. There was a time when I was reading my Bible, when I was praying. There was a time that I'd get up on Sunday morning, and I couldn't wait to get to church. But, Pastor, somewhere along the way, I've let that first love for Jesus go by the wayside. And, Pastor, I need to come back to Jesus today. Oh, I, I tell you, based upon the authority of God's Word, that He's making His grace available to you, and He wants to bring you all the way back to Him where you can have that first love that you once had for Jesus. So in just a moment, when we worship again, I'm going to invite you. I mean, you feel like you failed him. You come to this altar on either side, and you bow before Jesus, and you confess to him, and you say, Lord, I failed you, and you tell him exactly how you failed him. 
And then ask him to forgive you and cleanse you and to give you victory. The Bible says if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You see, even believers can fail Jesus. But don't let your failure be final. Jesus has a way of overcoming your failure and bringing you back to him. And I'll encourage you to come to the altar in just a moment. Here's a third word that captures the essence of Easter. And the word is power. Power. I want you to listen to Peter's explanation of the sheer power that God exercised when he raised his son from the dead. In Romans chapter 1, verse 4, Jesus, who was declared the Son of God with power, by the resurrection from the dead, according to the spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Let me tell you what the resurrection proved once and for all. It proved that Jesus was and is and will forever be the Son of God. It validated every one of his claims. It validated every miracle he ever performed. It validated the gospel that he preached. My friend, the power of the resurrection is available to every single believer, everyone who's put their faith and trust in Jesus. That same resurrection power is available to you. As you live out your Christian life, you say, Pastor, Jesus tells me to forgive people who hurt me. I don't think I can do that. And I'm telling you, friend, that through the resurrection power of Jesus has been made available to you, you can forgive the person who's hurt you more than anybody else on this planet. You may say, well, pastor, Jesus tells me I'm supposed to love people. And there's this certain person in my life, it's just impossible for me to love them. And I tell you on the authority of God's word that through the supernatural resurrection power Jesus made available to you that you can tap into that power and you can love somebody that you never thought you could love. You say, Pastor, I can't be the husband that God's called me to be. And I tell you, dear sir, that you can be the husband that God's called you to be. And ladies, you can be the wife that God's called you to be through the resurrection power of Jesus made available to you. All you have to do is appropriate that power and trust him to do through you what you can never do yourself. In Ephesians 3, 20 and 21, Paul wrote, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, listen to this, according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Three words. Faith. Grace, power. Oh, they capture the essence of the Easter story. But there's one more word, and it's the word hope. Hope. We live in a hopeless world, don't we? In fact, friend, we lived in the most messed up world I've ever seen in my entire life. I've never seen anything like it. We live in a world where, you, where people are calling good evil and evil good. We live in a world that seems to be upside down, Right? I mean, it's amazing. And if we're not careful, we can allow the hopelessness of this world to drain away the hope that Jesus put within us. And we cannot afford for that to happen. If there, any group of people on the face of the planet 
who should be buoyed by hope and live with hope every single day, regardless of their circumstances. It is born-again believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, listen to what the Bible says right here. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 4, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope. You get that? You're born again to a living hope. A living hope when someone that you love dies. A living hope when somebody that you love walks out on you. A living hope when your child walks away from the the tenets of the faith that you have taught them all the years. Living hope, living hope, not dying hope, living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Listen, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled, and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. My friend, I promise you this. As I said earlier, every person in this room is going to die at some point if Jesus tarries. Trust me. You can't cheat death. You're going to die. But I want you to know that when you die, you're still going to live. Because God created you with an immortal soul. And your immortal soul is either going to live in heaven with Jesus or in hell separated from Jesus. And I want to say something to every believer in this room. You need to understand something. That when a a believing uh, family member of yours dies, when you as a believer die, you don't have to fear death. You know why? Because Jesus has taken the stinger out of death. I'll tell you, friend, death has been defeated. And you read 1 Corinthians 15. It's like Paul taunts Satan, sin, and death because Jesus has won the ultimate victory over all three of them. You don't have to fear dying. You can can live your life knowing that you have an inheritance in heaven which is imperishable, undefiled, and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. That's the hope of glory. And every believer has the hope of glory inside them through the resurrected Christ. Oh, can I tell you? Jesus is the risen Lord. He is the risen Lord. That's a fact. You can't change it. The top atheists in the world can't change that fact. I'll tell you, friend, I I promise you this, today, tomorrow, until Jesus comes, Jesus is going to be king of the world. Mark it down. He is king of kings, and he is Lord of lords, and he is creating and establishing an everlasting kingdom. And the smartest thing we can do is to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Jesus is the risen Lord. So four words, four simple words that capture the essence of the Easter story, faith. And I'm going to invite you today to receive Jesus by faith as your Savior and Lord. There's no other way to be saved. And I'm going to uh, invite you today who are believers, that word grace, and you've backslidden, you've turned away from the Lord, and and you're not doing the things you used to do. And I tell you, my friend, that Jesus has grace. He loves you, and he wants you to come back to him. And he will bring you back to him if you will just let him.
So I'm going to ask you to come to the altar in just a moment and bow before the Lord and let him deal with you in that area that you're backslidden in. Listen, if you want to receive Jesus, you come to a staff member. In fact, I want our staff members to come right now, our worship team to come. And we're going to worship the Lord, and you're going to have a chance to respond with this word faith and this word grace and the word power. Uh, you say, I can't do this, and I can't do this as a believer. I can't obey Jesus in this area. I just don't have that kind of strength. And you come to the altar, and you just bow before Jesus, and you ask Jesus to give you his supernatural resurrection power to help you obey him. I can tell you this. Jesus never commands you to do anything without giving you the power to obey him. Remember that. And then the fourth word is hope. Hope. Listen, friend, you have a hope, a living hope in Christ. You don't have to fear death. You can walk in victory. So I'm going to ask you to come to the altar and just bow before the Lord and say, Lord, help me to walk in this living hope. Lord, don't let the world's mess snuff out the hope that you've given me. Lord Jesus, thank you. Just come to this altar. And you do business with Jesus. I tell you, he is the risen Lord. Let's bow our head. Father, in the name of Jesus, I pray for the movement of the Holy Spirit in this room. I pray that those who need to put their faith in Jesus to be saved would come to our staff members. And they'd be saved today. I pray that believers who need grace because they're backslidden would come. And they'd confess and forsake their sin. And that you would bring them back by your grace, just the way you brought Peter back. And Lord, hope, hope, I mean power. Oh, Lord Jesus, there are believers here today who are struggling with being obedient to you in a certain area of their lives. And I pray you bring them to the altar and help them to depend on you by faith for the power to obey you. And Lord, hope. Lord Jesus, we thank you that every believer has been promised a living hope. A hope that transcends this life and goes into the next life. Lord, thank you. Let them come to the altar and receive a, a fresh dose of hope from you today. Lord, we love you and bless you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and worship and you come as God leads you.